Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. We'll go ahead and uh, jump into this tonight. Tonight is a fun text. It's got a lot of uh, different twists and turns. Uh, I just want to point out that anytime I reference the name Fat Eli, because that's where the scriptures describe him. It's not very often we get to uh, call people names, but the Bible lets us do it, and it's okay, I guess. Um, hey, I always like to start off, let you guys talk, chat, get to know each other just a little bit. And uh, we'll start off with this fun little question. Uh, not the rational answer, nothing that, that is like, you know, calm, cool, and collected. What was the craziest thing you wanted to be when you grew up? Like when you look back, for me, I remember I had a phase, I wanted to be a bull rider. I can remember that phase. Talk to your group. What's the craziest thing that you wanted to be whenever you grew up? Bizarre answers too. Most bizarre answer we got so far. What is it? Turns to me and listen. Huh? Ro- who wouldn't be a rodeo clown? That's awesome. That's that is legit. Somebody else have one? We're not going to top rodeo clown, but what else do we have? Anybody else got one? Do you guys have anything at your table? Is good. Some NFL players, baseball players, all that. Do you guys have anything? Indiana Jones. Okay, Indiana Jones sounds way better than archaeology. All right. Hey, uh, this text tonight is uh, is getting Samuel growing up. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we will uh, we'll dive into this text. Great stuff here tonight. Hey, Jesus, we thank you so much for your word and the fact that it's uh, living and active. God, uh, I know that even tonight there are parts of this text that, uh, that challenge me. Challenge the way I think, challenge the way I live. Lord, I pray that as we dive into this, that you would be our great teacher. That, Father, you would be the one who guides, manipulates, and, Lord, convicts whatever you need to do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, may this be a time where we are shaped. Uh, we lift this up before you. Shall we pray? Amen. So this text has got some interesting and turns. This is a complex series of events in Israel, and we're looking through 1 Samuel. We get introduced to this woman named Hannah. She's got a husband. Anybody remember his name? Elkanah, yeah, Elkanah. And uh, she's got a little boy that she's waited. Remember the, uh, you know, the nasty lady that, uh, was, that, that picked on Hannah? Uh, she was cruel. She was mean-spirited. Anybody remember her name? Benai, yep, yeah, that's her name. Uh, she goes on to have a ton of kids, we know that, and here's poor Hannah, she can't have any. And then finally, God blessed her with this baby boy, and then about the age of three years old, she gives him back to God. Just takes him, gives him the temple, and the people that she gives him to, it's just, I mean, I want to be honest, if, if, if I'm reading this text for the first time, or if I lived there at that time, I think this is a really bad idea. I would look at this, and I, can't, could, I couldn't figure out as a parent... I get a chance to read this text 
on the other side of it happening. And so I get a chance to see all the beautiful things that happen with Samuel. But if I'm reading this and it's just unfolding, and I maybe I'm, I'm hearing this story for the first time, I'm like, lady, what in the world are you doing giving your kids to these losers? Because that's exactly what you've got. These guys are a mess. So we're going to cover some territory tonight. And we're going to start out in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting verse 11. And again, something I want to keep reminding you, when we get into this class, we just want to teach Bible. And I love that. It's fun for me just to kick back and just go through the Word. And hopefully you go, I didn't know that story. Uh, next week, I don't get a chance to teach one of the stories. It is, again, one of my favorites, but uh, we'll, we'll get it tonight. Tonight's pretty good. So here we go. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11 says, well, says Then Elkanah went home to Ramon, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. It says, Eli's sons were wicked. Eli's sons were wicked men. Um, that word wicked means like scoundrels or sons of the devil is what it means. Uh, I don't know if your kids, if you've got children, you know, and they've got friends you don't like for them to hang out with. That's Hoffman and Phanias. Uh They are the, they are bad boys, man. They are not, I mean, they're, they're, they're mean. They are horrible, horrific human beings in terms of, of how they live their lives. And the tough thing is, you know, they're preacher's kids. And uh, it, it, it's, they're the sons of the high priest, Eli. And they are jacked up. Uh, moving on, it says this. It says, it was a practice of the priest with the people. Oh, wait, wait I forgot this. It says, Eli said to wicked men, they had no regard for the Lord. Um, what it means is they didn't know the Lord. Now, I want to point out, it's not that they didn't have cognitive ability to know God. They, they were priests, for crying out loud. That's where they lived. But, man, it's like if you know those people that, man, and, man, I, I probably lived this in my own life at times where seasons where, man, I was going to church, but my heart was far from God. And these are guys that minister at the temple, but they're far from God in terms of how they live. And, man, you know people that profess to be Christians, and you're like, wow, wow, you profess to know Christ, and i like, I see how you live. That, these guys are that in spades, man. I mean, they are, they are that bad. Um, when, the, when the writer, again, we don't know who writes this, he just wants to say that their character is morally bankrupt. And their dad is a willing participant. Their dad's right in the middle of it with them. Let's keep on going. Um, so it goes through and it says, and we're going we're gonna to dig into some stuff here because I want to give you some context. And again, this is just learning stuff. It's fun for me. Hopefully it is for you. It says, that was a practice of the priest with the people. That when anyone offered a sacrifice, that while the meat was being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in hand. All right, let's back up. Because automatically you're going, I don't care about three-pronged three forks and priest, which you're going to here in a second. And we're going to take this thing about three-pronged forks and priests, and we're going to make it so cool when it comes to life. And you're going to go, what? Let's just back up for a second. Before we go too far, and I start ripping apart Hoffman, Phanias, and Eli, and kind of shredding the way they live their lives, let's back up for a second and set some context, all right? So again, we're going to do a little bit of Bible study here, because I want you to learn it. Because I think it's fun. I think it's like, all right, I want to know this. I want to get it. So we're going to dig a little deeper, right? I want you to write down some scriptures. You guys are going to study these at your table together, Okay? want you to read through them. You guys just divide them up. I don't know if there's a pen there. You can write them out, share them. I want to talk about what it was, how it was supposed to play out. And this would be stuff that, like, if Mark was preaching a sermon on a Sunday morning, there's not time to dive into it. Hey, folks, we got an hour and a half here, so let's just dive into it and have some fun. I want you to look at these texts, all right? Um, look at, first of all, Leviticus chapter 3, verse 16. Check, I'm going to give you several scriptures. Then look at 4, verse 10. 
426, 431, and 435. 26, 31, and 35. I'll go through this one, time, one more time. Leviticus 3.16, Leviticus 4.10, 26, 31, 35. Just a few more. Chapter 7 of Leviticus, verses 28, and verses 30 through 31, and one more, 17, verse 6. Read through those. Because before I jump in and start shredding these guys, I want you to understand the way it was supposed to play out. So you can kind of juxtapose what's going on here. And you can see why it's so wrong. Alright, go ahead and read those. My, one of my favorites is verse chapter 3, verse 16. That's, that's just got a great line in it. Did you find the one of 316? I think it's right. Did you find it? Dude, I belong to God right now. That's what I'm saying. If you read 316... Uh, because I broke my neck, I haven't been able to work out since September. And for you guys who are listening on the podcast, 316 says, uh, oh, that's not it. I'm in, oh, that's 13. Yeah, that's why it didn't make sense. I'm in the wrong chapter. Flip back here. 316 makes this comment. It says, uh, where is that? i got to find it. Uh, it says, all the fat is the Lord's. Right now, dude, I feel like I belong to God. Like, totally. I belong to Him. Gonna say that over and over. There's another place where it says it in the scripture. All, all the fat belongs to God. I'm like, yep, yep, that's happening right now. Okay, read through this a little bit. We'll just press pause for a second, let you guys catch up on that. Alright, I think we got most of those read now. Okay, tell me what you're learning. What did you see? Burn the fat. Burn the fat. There you go. Fat belongs to the Lord. You see that over and over. It's kind of a weird thing. You're like, huh? It's kind of a an odd thing. But even in our in our culture, man, do you find a, a good steak that's marbled? I mean, you know, like, oh, man, that, that's look at the marble of that steak. It's a good steak. And we kind of get that concept. And you can see that it was really specified in Scripture what the priest was, was supposed to get. Here's the background on that. And I don't have time to unpack all the Levitical code on this. But at the end of the day, the priest was supposed to be dependent on God to provide for them. This was their job. It's what they did. Uh, it'd be the equivalent of... You know, Mark Christian, in order for him to get paid for the work he did here, he's not a high priest, he's not a priest. If he's listening to this, he'd be like, yeah, whatever. It'd be the equivalent of, you know, he's allowed to use part of the offering to, to provide for him and his family. That's the way it worked. And that's, it's even some of the concept of where all that comes from, is that the priest had a specified mount that he could get access to. Now, I remember as a kid, I don't know what this guy's name was, but when I was a kid, you know, probably like 19 years old or something, I was in, you know, in Bible college, I was our Christian you know, going there, and late one night, one of my buddies turned on television, and it was this TV evangelist guy. I don't remember his name. We may have talked about him last time in his class, but this dude was a train wreck. He would show himself literally in front of, in front of planes, girls in bikinis. He's telling everybody to send him his money, and he would literally say the lines. He would say the phrase, whatever I do with that money is none of your business. You give me your money, and I'll give 10% to God. I'm like, dude, you're evil is what I'm thinking. Like, you're, you're just jacked up. And so that's part of the issue we get into is that even in this day and age, when you hear about a preacher embezzling money or you hear about misappropriation of funds within a church and people embezzling money, it just it gets your hackles up. You need to feel that about this text. It needs to tick you off. It needs to frustrate you because what they're doing is wrong. But it's even worse than that. Let me read the text for just a little bit. Let's unpack it. Uh, I'll just t- turn too far. I have a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why do they save the breasts for Aaron? It's just what they got. He got the breasts. Was it the right thigh, I think? It was just what God said, this is what you're going to get. What does he do with it? He'd eat it. That was his food. Oh. That was his, their meal. That was the food they got to eat for him, for his family. That was God's way of saying, I'm going to provide for you. 
You don't need to go out and you know work the fields. You just need to minister in the temple and be before me, and I'll provide your food. And you've got it. So let's go on, chapter two. Uh, let's keep reading about these losers. It says, um, it says, when anybody offered a sacrifice, and while the meat was still being boiled, the servant of the priest would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would plunge it into the pan kettle cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself whatever the fork brought up. All right, let's let's keep going a little bit more. Um, so some things you need to recognize here that are interesting. He says, this is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh, but even before the fat was burned, the servant of the priest would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. Now, I, we read that, and it's a little bit boring when you first think about it. Like, what, what's so intriguing about that? What's the problem? You know, for sticking a fork in some meat, who gives a rip? All right, anybody here like to cook? Got any cooks in here? Got a few? All right. So if I give you a pot roast, okay, and for boiling, we're gonna, we'll, we'll use, for, for the sake of this, we'll use a crock pot, okay? We just kind of go there, we get that. You put a roast in a crock pot, you're going to slow cook it all day, you know, maybe you're going to pull it later on for sandwich or something like that. If you've got that boiling, you know, simmering all day long, okay? Let's say that you walk up and it's been simmering from the moment you left to go to work until the moment you came home, you know, you're busy that day, you walk in, you'd be cooking on high, cooking on low, but it's cooked all day long for an extended period of time. It had fat in there, all the stuff. You put it in the pot. You walk in with a fork, and you stab it into that thing. After it's cooked the entire day, what happens? It falls apart immediately. I mean, your fork's going to get some, but it's going to fall apart, right? You get the concept. You walk up, and you put that pot roast in that pot as soon as they come up. As soon as it, it hits the pot, you know, you walk by, and you stab it with a fork. As soon as it's been put in there, or maybe shortly, then an hour, even an hour, even an hour being in the crock pot, you walk by and you grab one of those big old, you know, pronged forks. You shove that thing down in there with a three-pronged fork. So you get, I mean, you get a wide amount to stab this thing. It's not like a little skewer. You stab that thing down in there. After about an hour or less, you pull it up. What do you have? The whole thing. The whole thing. What did God get? Nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing. What these priests are doing is robbing from God. They're taking an offering that belongs to Him. And you got to keep in mind. If you're coming to offer the priest and you're taking what would have been the best animal you had out of your herd and you brought it into this point of sacrifice, the very, very, very best of what you've got, and you bring it up to this priest, he puts it in there for just a little bit, and you're sitting back watching your sacrifice being made, and all of a sudden the priest says, now it's my turn. And he stabs it in, and he's just laughing, cackling, joking around, taking it. He goes back around some other part of the building, drops this thing off. I mean, these guys are creating a feast for themselves. A feast. It's interesting. The reason why I think it's, it's fascinating to see Eli flip over to chapter 4. You're going to get into this uh, next week when you, when you have this lesson. Watch this. It says, uh, we don't have time to unpack all this right now. You're going to get into this next week. Long story short, they let the Ark of the Covenant go into battle. They should have never done that. I, I'm just, that's not the point of where we're headed. Ark gets captured. Okay? Spoiler alert. Ark gets captured. There you go. Philistines grab it. Hophni and Phinehas die. They come back to tell Eli, hey, your boys are dead. Okay, so chapter 4, start, it starts up at verse 12. We'll move down. Um, Eli heard the outcry. He says, what's the meaning of the uproar? You know, the man, there's a man who, who ran back from battle. He ran over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and whose eyes were set uh, so that he could not see. And he told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from this this very day. Eli asked, what happened, my son? He says, the man who brought the news replied, 
Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered heavy losses, and your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. Um, and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, I do appreciate this. The one thing I appreciate about Eli. When he, uh, when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was old and fat. He was an old man and heavy. He led Israel for 40 years. So when you read over here about Hophni and Phinehas, it's not just them that's getting fat off this. It's not just them. In fact, earlier you saw that Eli sat down. We talked about that last week. Eli is just as guilty as they are. He's going fat off the sacrifice that belongs to God. And he is one jacked up individual just like his boys. Let's, read, let's keep reading the text. And it's not just the fact they're stealing from God. Okay, you can look and say, well, they're stealing the Israelites. I mean, they're also stealing from God. So you keep reading. Um, it says, uh, The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. I mean, they despise. Verse 12 and 17, I want to contrast these guys. Well, we'll read through 21. It says, But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. He says, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up to her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Love that image of his mom. Every year, you know, I can't imagine the work she puts in it at. Can you imagine for, just, just go there for a second if you're Hannah and you know that once a year you're going to get to see your boy. And, and maybe she got a chance to see him more often than that. We know for sure she saw him once a year. Can you imagine the craftsmanship that went into that ephod? And the ephod is what the priest would wear but keep in mind, Samuel doesn't, he, he, he can't be a priest. He's not from the line of Aaron. It's not that he can't be. But she still dresses him like the part. She's given to God. She dresses him like a priest, like the other priest. He's living right there. And I can't imagine how much meticulous detail. And even like I'm wondering, she's got to, like, I wonder how much he grew right now. Like, I wonder if he grew an inch or two inches. And she's trying to think what the measurements are going to look like. And she's wondering all those kind of things. And she's getting all the materials to make this thing. And then, man, just like a good mama, she sits down and she just crafts this thing. And I bet she put every stitch was prayer. Every stitch was just going before God as she dressed this boy. And, and I love the investment she makes in making him an ephod. I love that she looks and she sees where he's heading. She looks and sees what he's, what he's about, and she invests her time. We do the same thing as parents. Whether your kids are into football, they're into golf, they're into wrestling, they're into band, they're into dance, they're into music. You know what it's like. I mean, as parents, the amount of money we will spend, the amount of time we will spend on our children is ridiculous. Sometimes, like, in unhealthy ways, let's just be honest, you know. Uh, there are times where we probably spend too much. Uh, but I know that, man, for me, there's no sacrifice. There's no effort that I wouldn't put forth for, for my kids. And uh, it's not that I worship them or that I idolize them. I just love them, man. I love my kids. I want to give them the very best that I can. Within limits, you know, I don't, I don't want them spoiled. I don't want them unhealthy. But at the same time, you know what it's like. If it's in your power to give a gift, it's in your power to bless, you want to bless. You just do because you love them. I think that's Hannah's heart right now. She sees these wicked boys. She sees where she's placed her son. She, their reputation's all over Israel. We see that. She knows where her boy's living. She can't take it back. So every year she walks up and she sees these two losers influencing her son. She sees fat Eli influencing her son. Every day she makes, every year she makes a mini five. She walks up there and I wonder, she goes, God, what are you doing? She gives it to her boy. She hugs him. She kisses him. She wraps her arms around him. She probably cries. He puts it on. I don't know if this is the only clothing he has or it's just the ephod that he wears as he ministers before the Lord. We don't know. Let's keep on moving. Um, 
lost my spot here. It says, uh, Eli would bless Elkanah's wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman. That's interesting in contrast to the other wife. He says, uh, to take the place of the one she prayed for uh, and gave to the Lord. And they go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. All right, I want to do some contrast stuff that's kind of interesting. I want you to look at it. Um, well, let's look at a comparison contrast between the loser brothers and Samuel. All right? We'll just call them that. Um, if you look at verses 12 and 17. Oh, I can't do this kind of stuff the whole time. Eli's sons were wicked. They had no regard for the Lord. Verse 17. The sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight. Uh, they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now I want you to contrast that real quick with Samuel. So I want you to look at 18. But Samuel's ministry for the Lord. Okay? One group has no regard for the Lord. And Samuel, verse 18, ministers before the Lord. And then contrast 17, where it says, The sin of the men, a young man was very great in the Lord's sight. With verse 21, where it says, I lost it. Um, Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. I mean, just keep in mind, we get lost sometimes and, and we'll read this book as if it's just an historical account. But the writer's going to do some beautiful things in a little bit. And if you love, I, some of you guys grew up, you loved English comp. Maybe you love poetry, maybe you love writing, maybe you love books, you love to read. I was not that guy. But what I can do is I can greatly respect this author. And I wish I had time to unpack some of the cool, nuanced things that if we could read Hebrew and we could really dive into this, he is doing some really cool comparison contrast. And if you were a good Hebrew study or you go, whoa, look at that compared to this and this compared to this, it's full comparison contrast. It's pretty cool stuff. So let's talk about Hannah's influence. Um, let's, let's get going a little bit further. Um, we know that Hannah dressed him as a little priest. Uh, you know, Hophni and Phinehas in verse 22, I want you to see. So here's this little boy. Uh, at this time, he's probably, he's a preteen. He's a little guy. Um, now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. All right. First of all, there is no biblical precedent for what they're doing. They're taking up a whole Canaanite approach to temple prostitutes as a part of worship. This is not what God wants. These are not full-on temple prostitutes, but but what Hophelite and I are doing is getting really close, man. I mean... They are using their office just to completely rape and pillage Israel, both in food and in sex. These, I mean, I, when I say these guys are losers, I mean it. I mean, they're bad, bad guys. They're robbing from God. They, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if, if your only choice at a church was to go to a church where you knew that, every, uh, that the preachers on staff were stealing and they were sleeping with anybody they wanted to. And that, imagine how much disrespect and dis- disdain and hatred you would have for that. Think about Israel. Every sacrifice they get is getting stolen. And they walk around and it's like a brothel, man. These guys are just sleeping around. They're doing all, and literally the scripture says all Israel knows what's going on. And the one man who can stop it doesn't do it. One man who can shut it down won't shut it down. Sad deal. Is it because he's enjoying it too? I think he's enjoying it too. I think he's an ineffective father. I mean, you ever known a parent that's got a kid that's running wild and they don't do anything to control it? I mean, they know it. They know what's going on. They go, oh, I had no idea. Like, really? You're lying. You're full of crap. We know you are. There's no truth in what you're saying. 
Eli knows what his boys are doing, and uh, it's going to be a bad deal for Eli here in a little bit. Let's keep going. All right. Eli's very old. So he said to his boys, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it's not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. If a man sins against another man, may God mediate for him. That'll important a little bit. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sons, however, did not listen to the father's rebuke. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. <laughs> You're going to see what he foreshadowed that, told it was coming. You know, Eli rebukes them. But he's not, a, he's not a good priest. He had the ability to remove them. He had the ability to get rid of them. He had the ability to take them out. And I don't know if, if it's possible for you or possible for me to get so clouded by our love for our own children that we lose the ability to call them out. And I think, I think Eli might be in that place right now. Like, yeah, he can call them out, but, but he won't enact the right discipline. He won't even shut his own boys down. And because he doesn't shut it down and stop it and put a stop to it, and you know, right now it says he's a very old man. He's just let this go on for way too long. I mean, they're absolutely out of control. Moving on, it says, uh, um, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with men. Who does that sound like? Who does that sound like? Yeah. Remember the, the point in Jesus? And he grew in favor? Remember that? Yeah, I love, 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 love some of the foreshadowing there. The writer does right there. Moving on. Um, so, um, Eli's just, it's, it's a complete lack, ineffective leadership on his part. Um, Phanias is interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about him for just a second because I found this intriguing. Uh, he's named after another priest. If you've got your Bibles, you can look over in the book of Numbers. Hold your finger for Samuel. I found this intriguing. I didn't know this. Uh, but he is named... Uh, after a priest named Phinehas in Numbers 25. Flip over there real quick. You can read the story later on. Pretty crazy story. So here these guys are, full on fornication. They're asleep with girls, shacking up with girls in the temple. I mean, they're just, they're just bad guys. There's a guy in the book of Numbers. His name is also Phinehas. He's the son of a priest named Eleazar. So Eleazar has a son named Phinehas. Eli has a son named Phinehas. Both Eleazar and Phanias, uh, Eleazar and Eli are priests. You with me? But watch, the first Phanias, he catches this, uh, this Israelite named Zimri and a Moabite woman named Cosby. Uh, they were in the middle of sexual immorality, and uh, he basically drives a, a stake through both of them for doing it. This is what the first Phanias does. Crazy story. You need to read it in Numbers 25. It's awesome. The Bible is gruesome. Um, you guys can go through and read that. But he drives a stake and just kills them both. And here's the other Phanias now coming up later on, the son of Eli, and he's just sleeping with women all over. I mean, this place is a brothel. It is like disgusting, out of control, ridiculous. Um, I want to talk about a point real quick. Um, where, well, we'll move on. It says, now man of God came to Eli. We don't know who that is. He says, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your father's house when you're in Egypt? Aaron. He's talking about Aaron. Um, in Egypt under Pharaoh. I chose your father out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up on my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod in my presence. I gave your father's house all the offerings made with fire by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves? See, even God's calling that Eli now. You fatten yourselves on the choice parts of every offering. Made my people Israel. Can you hear God's anger? He's just ticked. God's fed up with him. 
I wonder. I wonder what it's like in God's eyes when things that are meant to bring glory to Him are used to bring glory to us. I wonder if God still gets frustrated and angry angry with that. When sacrifices that were intended for Him get used to fatten ourselves. And I don't, I don't know. I know as I, even as I read that text, I'm getting my own butt kicked over how I spend my money. I'm getting my butt kicked over how I spend my time. I'm getting my butt kicked over how I use my words. I'm thinking about my, my time, my talent, my treasure, and all those things, and God's saying, give me the first fruits of it. Give me the best of what you've got. Let me, let me take care of you, Jason. Let me bless you beyond anything you can imagine. But all of a sudden, I don't know if these boys thought we're not going to get enough. You know, if we, if we wait till the food's cooked and we wait, you know, we, we, we wait too long, we plunge our fork in, you know, we don't get enough to eat. I, I don't know what caused them to start doing it early. I don't know what caused them to stop waiting. But at some point one day, either Eli, maybe the boys saw their, their dad doing it. That, that maybe instead of waiting until all the fat was cooked off, there was a little bit of fat in there. And that first time the boys watched their dad stab that fork in and take a little bit extra. Man, the family got fat and happy that night. Family had a good meal that night. And all of a sudden, I love that line that whatever you're to tolerate, you eventually come to accept. Whatever you're to tolerate, you eventually come to accept. Until some point it goes from, ah, we probably took that off a little early. Until all of a sudden you find yourself at this pendulum over here, Eli does, where, dude, he's not even allowed to cook hardly. I mean, the meat's still raw, it says. It's just raw. And understand, they're not eating raw meat. They're not like carnivores like that. They're taking it off to the side, roasting themselves a great meal. But I wonder if there's ever a point in my life, and I'm going to call me out, not you out, because that's a lot easier. I wonder if there's points in my life where I take things that, that should have been given over to God, and I pulled them off the altar way too soon. Pulled them off too soon, man. And God said, man, if you were to just... If you were to let me be glorified, I would have provided for you. And it's interesting, even in, in, in my life, I'm going to let you live vicariously through my words. In my life, I can remember a time in my life where if I could have made $20,000, it would have blown my mind. Remember what you're like as a little kid, trying to fathom $20,000. Oh my word, what would I ever do with that? And all of a sudden you find that twenty is not enough, you need twenty-five. Just not quite enough. 25 just doesn't quite do it. And we would be happy if we just had 35. You know what I mean? If I could just ever get to 35, everything's going to be great. And you ever notice that bar just keeps coming higher and higher and higher and higher. And you never quite seem to attain it. You never quite seem to get there. And all along, God's saying, if you would have been dependent on me all along, I could have supplied all of your needs. I would have given you everything you needed. But I find myself growing fat off the blessings and the sacrifices that belong to God. Does that make sense? Or is it too abstract? You with me? I'm calling me out. They're calling you out. That's, that's uh, Jason kicking his own butt right there. Um, let's move on. Uh, so it keeps going on. You, you see his total lack of influence in his boys in 23 to 26. Um, you got ritual prostitution taking place. You know, uh, it, it's just... God hardens their heart, um, and and they're gonna they're gonna be held accountable. You know, he says, "Why do you honor your sons more than me?" He's a, the father 
who could have changed and charged the hearts of his own boys, and he doesn't do it. I wonder if this is reason why Eli thinks Hannah's drunk. You know, he looks at the way his boys live. Maybe he walks up and goes, girl, are you drunk? You know, because he's used to watching his own boys. It's not like they're restricted to food and sex. Their wickedness is pervasive. It's anything you could possibly imagine they're doing. And here's this little kid, Eli, from the age of three, growing up in this junk. Every day he wakes up and he's serving in the temple. I don't want to make this too graphic. But as Eli's over here just kind of washing the temple dishes, he can hear Hoffman and Phanias having sex with some lady over here. And he hears the noises. He hears all the mess. He's around it. He knows the rules about how sacrifice is supposed to be handled. And here's, here's little Samuel walking over going, i got to eat part of this food. And I know they stole it from God. And he's just watching these two other priests who are just living large, forcibly taking what they want. And Samuel's just a little boy, year by year, putting on a new leaf on every time his mom brings him one, watching this corrupt culture he's living in. If anything, let that be a, a voice of encouragement to us. You're going to find a boy named Samuel raised in a corrupt culture. And I know we live in a corrupt culture, no doubt. The amount of, you know, you've got right now the average age that, that a kid first gets introduced to pornography on a phone. You know what the new age is? Huh? 11, 11 years old. 11 years old, man. When I was a kid, it was terrifying. I remember the first time that I stumbled into that, like totally Fifth grade, I remember, but you had like we found a magazine. Me and a buddy, it took off running, and looked at those pictures. We're like, whoa, what in the world? You know, we, we found that as kids. We, but I did. I, I found that once as a kid. You know, you, it, back then you would have had to go to a store and you had to go buy that, and you know, you had to hide it in your parents. And now it's so easy for kids, just right here, one click, they're there, man. I mean, this, this is a, a really difficult culture that our kids live in. Brutal culture they live in. It's, it is so much harder to be a kid now than it was when we were all kids. It's so much harder. The, the sin is so much easier to get into than anything that we understood. So much easier. And I look at, I look at Eli, and from the age of three, he can grow up in a, in a culture where they're stealing from God, in a culture where there's sex all around this kid. And he grows up to be a holy... Not Eli. Can you say Eli to me, Samuel? He grows up to be a holy young boy. I think there's hope for all of our kids. There's hope for all of our kids. And um, I think a praying mom is a really big deal. <laughs> I think a mom committed to the father is a really, really big deal. And I would imagine that she, Hannah, intercedes for Samuel all day long, every day, nonstop. And it makes a huge impact. Let's keep it going. I get off on tangents here. Um, so, uh, I lost what verse you on. It says, Therefore, the Lord God declares... I promised that your house and your father's house would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. All right. Let's go back to chapter 2. And I believe... Oh, uh, man. What verse was it? I forgot. Oh, verse 7 of Hannah's prayer. In chapter, chapter 2, it says, The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. And, uh, and you're seeing Hannah's prayer getting lived out right now in these guys. He says, Every one of you that I do not cut off from my altar will be spared only to blind your eyes with tears and to grieve your heart, and all your descendants will die in the prime of their life. Wow! God's ticked. God's ticked. 
He's sorely irritated. And I think it's a healthy thing for us to remember that, that our God is a loving God, but he's also a jealous God. And he's jealous for his word. He's jealous for his nature. He's jealous for holiness. And what these guys, he's doing, he cuts them off. It takes a long time, about 150 years, before I get, God gets them all weeded out. And he will weed them all out until Solomon will end the line of Eli. And will never be, after Solomon, I go through and unpack all that, we don't have time right now. Within Solomon's reign, he'll end the reign of Levi's sons being priests. And they'll be cut off forever. They're gone. Never be a priest again. But it does take a while. Um, so Samuel is this little priest. Um, she's dressed him every day to follow the office of God. And then in contrast, you've got Phinehas and Hophni who are evil and growing in disfavor with God and the Israelites. And so God makes this oracle against the house of Eli. Um, I think chapter 2, verse 30 is one of the most critical verses in all of the text. I think it sets up both for all of 1 and 2 Samuel. It says, therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declared, I promised that your house and your father's house uh, would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me, those who honor me, this line, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. That, that line right there is the line, I think, for, first, for all of 1 Samuel. Those who honor me will be honored. Those who despise me will be disdained. And man, I'll tell you what, that's true for us today. It's true for every one of us, man. When it comes to how we approach Jesus Christ, you know, how we approach who he is, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be disdained. And that line right there is as applicable to us today as it was in his time. Um, I'm going to get into something here that is just meant to be a little bit fun for you guys that like literature. Um, and again, we're going a little bit deeper. You guys said you're good with that, right? Go a little bit deeper and look at the stuff. Cool. Let me show you something that I found that I thought was interesting. Uh, I talked about this, like this, this chiastic structure in terms of how the writer builds it. And I don't go into this because you need to know it because it's going to impact your eternity. It has no impact in your eternity. I do it because I want you to have to fall in love with Scripture and realize that there are layers to this thing that are like, whoa, 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 whoa. That when the, when the author wrote this, he was being artistic as well as articulate. And and, and sometimes we approach the Bible like it's a textbook, and it's a dangerous thing to do. You know, if my, I told you last week, my, my daughter wrote this beautiful thing in our mirror where she said, you are handsome, and she said all these cute words on there. If I just look at that analytically and go, hmm, well, you know, actually, there's, a, there's an issue here. I've got some gray coming in. I kind of get a little weight, Sydney, and da, 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 you know, your handwriting kind of kind of drifts off here just a little bit, and so it's not quite level, and I think you might have misspelled a word right over here. If I get analytical about that, I miss the heart of it. I think I want you to also realize these books are meant to be beautiful. They're beautiful. And for me to show you something right now, the only reason I show it to you is because I want you to go, man, that's cool. I would have never known that was there. And, you know, if you take time to do art, you want people to notice. Maybe you're out of your likes art. You enjoy art. That's something you're into. I got a son that he digs it. He likes it. Um, I, I want to show you the artistic side of what the writer's doing. So here we go. Um, You've got, first of all, we'll just do A up here. First thing you've got is you've got this Song of Hannah, okay? Um, what's called Song of Hannah? And that is in 2, 1 through 10, okay? So we're going to call that A. And then underneath that, I want to show you something interesting here. In B, you see that Samuel ministers for the Lord. I don't have room to write at all. So I'm just going to say Samuel ministers for the Lord. Uh, and you're going to see that in 2.11, okay? All right? Then we're going to move on, and then you're going to see in, uh, 
in 2, 12 through 17, you're going to see um, that, uh, where's that? Uh, the sins of Eli's sons. Alright, and that's 2. What were the verses on that? I already forgot. Uh, that's 12 through 17. I mean, if you guys are listening to the podcast, this might be hard for you to follow. I'm putting on the whiteboard for everybody else. Um, and then you're going to see after that, uh, you're going to see that Samuel ministers before the Lord. And that is in um, 2, 18 through 19. Ah, I can't write today. Running out of room. And then you're going to see up here, last one before we start going backwards. Um, you're going to see here in this under section E, Eli blesses Samuel's parents. And again, I've got the worst penmanship because I'm trying to hurry for all this. Uh, and that comes in 2, 20 through 21. All right, and now we're going to start working our way back out. Okay, so watch this. This is what the writer does. In, uh, here you're going to see, we're going to go back out to D, Samuel grows in the Lord's presence. So Samuel's before the Lord, you see that here? And he's back before Samuel grows in the Lord's presence. And that is in, where's that at? Uh, I lost it. That's 221B. Um, then we're going to look at Samuel, uh, wait, I'll set. Uh, you get back to the sins of Eli's sons. Back to the sins of Eli's sons, and you're going to look at that as 2, 22 to 25. Again, this has no impact on you walking with Jesus, I know that. I just want you to be impressed with Scripture. And then B, Samuel grows in the Lord's presence. So up here we said, Samuel for the Lord, B, Samuel, before the Lord. I get right. I'm trying to go fast because we don't have time to cover all this. Uh, you're going to see that in uh, 226. And then finally we get all the way back out to where we started. And you'll see that um, um, it's the, uh, the oracles of God. Or God speaks. And you find that in, that's like uh, 227 to 36. Now let me talk about this for a second. Listen, at some level, if you're not into literature, that's a little bit boring, and I get it, and that's cool. I'm fine with that. The bigger point that I want you to see is, look at the craftsmanship of writing. For, for some of you guys that get into that, and you're like, man, that's really pretty cool. This is absolute beautiful writing. It's just like, whoa, it's thought out. It's, it's not like some guy just hacking stuff out on a, on a piece of papyri. You know, it's, it's not him just flying through it. Half the time when I type a text, I don't even spell words right. I'm doing shortcuts. You know, I don't even know how to write with my hand anymore without getting a stinking hand cramp. You know, I tried to write a letter the other day. It's like, oh, crud. And half the time, we live in 140 characters or less. All I want you to do is say, when you look at Scripture sometimes, we get in this textbook mode. Well, it's a historical narrative. I'm just going to read that. I just want you to see for just a second, like, man, these writers are doing some pretty interesting things here. Like, when they write this, there's some beautiful craftsmanship that's inspired by the Holy Spirit that really is meant to be beautiful. Again, I don't dig literature. That's not my, it's not my jam. It's not what I get excited about. 
But when I see this, and I realize how many, you know, thousands of years ago this was written, I just look and I go, man, this is a beautiful book. This is a beautiful text. I mean, they spend a lot of time. Let's get into this because there's a lot more pressing, cool things to get into. All right, so let's fly through this. I just want you to see that. We'll move on. We don't need to live in any longer. All right, so uh, let's, uh, what verse we look at? We're going to pick up in chapter 3, verse 1. Um, we see that God punishes them. He says, I'll raise myself. Oh, I can't get to that yet. I can't get to that yet. I can't get to that yet. Um, and what happens to your sons, Hophaph and Ias, will be assigned to you. They're both going to die on the same day. We, we know that's happened. I already read that. And I'll raise up myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister before my anointed one always. And then everyone left in your family line will come bow down before him for a piece of silver and a crust of bread. Appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. God's going to raise himself up a priest outside of the line of Aaron. And we're going to look at some texts right now because I think they are are critical for us to look at. Uh, Look at the book of Hebrews chapter 7. You know, we thought, if you're reading this story for the first time, you might have thought, oh, it's going to be Samuel. He got himself an ephod. You know, he's the one. It's going to be him. But I want you to see that there's, there's a lot bigger promise that's being revealed here than, than just Samuel getting an ephod. Uh, flip over to chapter 7 of Hebrews. We're going to look at a few verses. We'll start uh, by looking um, at verse 11. It says, if perfection could have been attained through Levitical priesthood, on the base of the law was given. Why was there still need for another priest to come? One after the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Let's just don't even bog down in the order of Melchizedek stuff. We can study that for hours. He says, for there's a change of priesthood, there must also be a change of law. We're not going to get into that. Um, uh, I want to kick that back over to, which verse I'm going to look at here? Um, oh, Jesus, let me find that. Here we go. Skip over to uh, verse 23. It says, now there may have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. And he, is all, and he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, unlike Hophni Phinehas and Eli, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. So here you've got these guys, Hophni Phinehas, they're pulling sacrifices off of the altar, and Jesus is the great high priest who lays himself on the altar. Hophni, and Eli are the losers who completely sin before God. Jesus is the great, great high priest who never sinned before God. Eli, Hophni, and are the losers that come through who offend all of Israel, who separate Israel. Jesus is the great high priest who unites the altar, his one body. And the contrast, when God says that I'm sending another high priest, he's telling the story of Jesus. He's telling the story of the one who is to come. He's going to crush this office, not just here, but he's going to crush it through the death, burial, resurrection of his son. And Jesus becomes the last, the greatest, and the only priest we need. He becomes our intercessor. Because at that day, in order for you to get your sins forgiven, it took blood. I mean, blood of bulls and goats. And they slaughter this animal, and the priest would offer it and sacrifice, and that blood would atone for your sins, but through Jesus, through His blood, our sacrifice is met once and for all, forever and always. That's a beautiful thing about Jesus. So when God reads this, and if you're a good Jewish person, you don't understand that you guys live on the other side of the resurrection. 
Read this and listen on the other side of the resurrection, the resurrection when he says this. He says, I will raise up myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his house and he will minister for my anointed one always. What a beautiful thing is he tells a story of Jesus coming, man. Jesus coming. The great high priest who doesn't sin, who doesn't take advantage. The great high priest who doesn't steal what belongs in the altar but lays himself down for us. That, that is a faithful, beautiful high priest. And because of that, because of that truth, you can look at verses, uh, oh, I left Hebrews. Because of that, oh, I'm going to turn back to Hebrews. Hold oh, on, I got there. So I don't misquote it. I don't want to screw it up. Back to chapter 7. Um, where was it at? Verse 19. Because of that truth, it says this. Uh, he says, And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. That's Jesus. We're given a better hope. We're not stuck with priests who are going to minister before God and steal from us. We're not stuck with priests who are going to minister before God. And we don't have to go through any priest to get access to the throne of God anymore. Back then, if you're an Israelite, you had to go through Eli. Or you had to go Hophni and Phinehas. We don't live that way now. We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. There's one mediator between God and man. And his name is not Eli. His name is not Phinehas. His name is not Hophni. There's one mediator between God and man. It's a man, Christ Jesus. And that's a beautiful thing that we have on this side of the resurrection. It's a beautiful thing in having Jesus. A better hope, a better way. Man, what a powerful thing that we don't have to live like these guys lived. What a powerful thing that we're not stuck in the rut they're stuck in. Hmm. Verse 7, 25, if you want to read that too in Hebrews, I keep turning away from that too soon. 25 states this. He says, therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always, always lives to intercede for them. Love that. That you've got a priest who right now stands on your behalf. And the, and the cool thing is, we all wonder, man, what's going to be like to stand before God? And, and I guess, I, I don't want to go too far with this, but I want to give you a different picture of that. And don't, don't just picture yourself standing before God. And I know Scripture's clear that we'll stand before the Father of Heaven, but I want to give you a different image. I want you to see that when, when, you, when you approach God someday, I mean, I know my day's coming, I've already got my coffin in my office. I've already built it. My funeral's already planned. And I'm not being, you know, figurative here. I'm being literal. I literally built my coffin. It's in my office. I'm, 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 no, I'm serious. I'm, I'm like, now we can't listen to this guy anymore. For me, I just had to get to the point that I took life more serious. And I, I was taking advantage of my days. And I wasn't, I was making decisions based on this side of eternity that, that were dumb. And I wanted a constant reminder every day. I wanted to take it home and my wife said no. Uh, so if you ever want to come by my office and see it, it sits there every day. And it's a constant reminder. My family picture's up there. My staff are all used to it. They don't think about it anymore. I'm a little out there. I admit it. But I've got to sit there. I made it out of cedar uh, because I'm not oak because oak is awesome. Oak is like top tier wood. I'm like, yeah, I know myself too well. Uh, I'd like to aspire to be oak, but I'm, I'm no oak. <laughs> Um, I've known guys that are oak. I'm like, yeah, dude, that guy, he's awesome. I'm more, more cedar. Um, <laughs> way too much thought put into it. But every day I look at that and I think, man, someday I'm going to go in that box and they're going to put me six foot under and everyone's going to go eat chicken and potato salad. You know, and life goes on. It's just what's going to happen. They're going to put me in that box and, and unless the Lord returns before then, this world will keep spinning 
and new people and new leaders and, and new teachers and new people, they'll, they'll, they'll come and I'll go and I'll just be a name forgotten in history. But between this day and that day, I want to live for Jesus with my life. I want to live for Him. I sure don't want to live like Hoffman and Phanias, I know that. I want to live for Him. So I put a constant reminder in my office every day I go to work. I see the box I'll go in someday. And my, my dad helped me make it because I can't build worth anything. He helped me design it. It's just square. It doesn't really look like a coffin. It just looks like a big square box with hinges on it. My family pictures along the top. I've already got my funeral written. I've asked my wife. Uh, she's supposed to take one of those big old fat magic markers. I think I told you guys this if you're in Judges. One of those real big fat magic markers. And I'm asking her to write one word on, on the lid. Just one word. I, and I said, babe, if I've not earned it, then please don't, please don't write it. If it is not true, I'm begging you. You do it as a, as a, as a true statement and testimony. And if, if it's not true, please don't write it. But I've asked you to take that marker and just write one word across the top of the lid. And I want it to be the last word said about me on this earth to be the first word that, that I hear God speak about me when I go home. And that word is faithful. That's all I want, this word faithful. And then if it's true, I want Justin to grab it. I want him to write that same word on there. And I want Levi to write it. I want Sydney to write it. I want Levi to write it. And I want the last thing said about me here be the first thing that Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, and the rest. That's what I want. And, and my open book test for you is that when you stand before a holy God, and he, he asks that question, man, what, what merit are you here? Don't answer that. Just kind of kind of look around the room and find the one that everyone's looking at. You don't have to open your mouth. And I'm not saying God's not going to ask you that question. I'm just playing here. God says, why, why should you be here? You know, as if God's going to ask trick questions. He won't. I, I know what I'll do. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And I'm going to look around until I find him. And I don't know if he'll be standing next to, to his dad. I don't know if he's going to be playing with little kids over on the side. I don't know if he's going to be standing up listening to prayers. I don't know what's going to happen in that moment when I, I dream and fantasize about it. But I'm going to find Jesus. I'm just going to point at him. That's it. I'm just going to find him. I got it. That's it. I got nothing else. I've got nothing I've done in this life that's worth jack. I've got nothing to contribute to this world that can sanctify or set me apart. All I have is Jesus. That's it. That's all I have. And when I stand before a holy God, and when you stand before a holy God, if you can mutter one word out of any question asked, just say his name. Just say Jesus. And if you can't even speak because you're so in awe of where you are, because that's what happened to everyone who came before a holy God. You know, they fell down on their face or they were in utter fear. And if you stand before the holy God, it, fear would be a justified response. Just point at him. Just find the one. You'll know it when you see him. You'll have no doubt. When you see him, just say him. That guy. I'm here through him. And he'll say, come on in. That's my boy. Come on in. And for me, that is my great high priest. That when I sin, I know that I can bend the ear of the high priest. I can bend the ear of Jesus and say, I'm sorry for sin." And he says, that's okay, Jesus. My blood's going to cover that, and I'll, I'll take care of that debt with my dad. Jesus, I've sinned before you. I know I've done wrong. Jason, I know that. My blood covers that. I'm going to cover that debt between you and my dad. I got that. And that's a faithful high priest. That's a new hope for me. 
I don't have to go every year hoping that God's going to forgive me. I don't have to, to muster up an animal to take up to be slaughtered. i got a faith life priest who stands before me every day, and I have confidence because of his blood and his grace to come before that throne every anytime I want. What a cool thing. I could have never gone into the Holy of Holies back in Samuel's day. I can go there every day. In fact, my, whole, my body becomes a temple before God. I have a chance at any moment's notice to stand before a holy God and speak with him. What a beautiful, mind-boggling thing. And we're all impressed with Samuel because he got to minister before the Lord. He got to live in Shiloh. You know, he got a chance to see what God was doing. Samuel trade places with you any day. You know why? Because Samuel got to hear about the Spirit of God. He never got to have it live inside of him. Samuel had to constantly watch these animals being slaughtered, constantly watch them being killed, constantly watching these sacrifices being offered. And you get to live in this world of sacrifice where a daily prayer and a daily time with God goes before him. What a beautiful thing. You live in a much better time than Samuel does. And your intimacy with the Father is way beyond his. Because the Spirit now lives inside of you. That's, I'm sorry, I get excited. Let's move on. So, what time is it? Oh my word, French. You gotta hurry. All right, here we go. Let's keep going. Uh, Samuel 3 verse 1 says the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli in those days the word of the Lord was rare and there were not many visions Um, there's a big difference um, that's about to happen between Eli and Samuel and and I want to point this out Eli's priesthood is not discredited it's defunct it's gone um it's interesting that three times, if you look at it, look at verse 211, 218, and 31. 218 and 31. That verb it used, minister, that usually only describes the activity of a priest. And it's mentioned three times around Samuel. And that's a little, a little bit of conflict because Samuel isn't actually allowed to be a priest. He's living there because of his mama's prayer. He's living there because she made a vow to God. It's interesting how he, he lives as a priest. But let me tell you something that's interesting about that. Do you guys remember what, what Samuel's mom, Hannah, said about, about him early on, about the boy? She's going to give him to God, and she says she gives a descriptive term that's kind of like Samson. She says he's going to be what? Anybody remember? Take a guess. Samson was this too. They both would have been this. Nazarite. Yeah, that's exactly it. The cool thing about being a Nazarite is I think Nazarite is kind of a cool metaphor for us to pick up in our world, and our lives. Because like a priest, he would have been holy as he went into the temple. He would have set himself apart before he entered the temple. But a Nazarite, he was supposed to be set apart all day, every day. A Nazarite was supposed to be set apart before God. Not to touch dead things. Not to go near anything that was like fermented alcohol. Not to do East. You guys know we studied a little bit about that. He would never cut his hair. He would never shave. And so... You know, Samuel probably looked like a wild man at some level. But I love the fact, this metaphor between a priest and a Nazarite. I think Nazarite has got some really cool things for us to consider. Because they're supposed to be holy, not just, not just like a priest who's holy before he goes before God. But, but a Nazarite is holy anywhere he went into the world. It's interesting, when you look at this, this priest, and I don't want to go into to crazy details here. When this priest would go before the throne of God, do you guys know about the rope and the bells and all that? Do you know about that stuff? Some of you know about that? All right. Some of you are like, I got heads on yes, heads on no. What they would do with that priest is they would put bells on, the, on his garment when he went into the Holy of Holies. Do you know why? So they could still hear him moving. Yeah. He could still hear him moving because if he stopped moving, you're like, ah, oh, crap.
crud. That guy was evil. He's dead. Which I have no idea why Hophni and Phinehas aren't dead right now. No idea why they're still alive. But Samuel's not just set apart for a day. He's not just set apart in a building. Samuel's set apart wherever he goes. That he lives a broader life of priesthood. We'll just keep going. Um, let's look at a few of the verses here. Um, one thing I want to pick up off of verse 35. Uh, we'll get that here in a second. It says, One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see. All right, now look at the verse before that. Find the comparison contrast between those two verses, one and two. What is it? Not many visions. Not many visions and? Yeah. Not many visions and whose eyes were dark he could not see. The writer again, just be impressed, going, oh, what a cool twist on words right there. What a cool layering thing that he does right there. Like, man, that's craftsmanship as a writer. He just says, um, he says, there were not many visions. One night, Eli, whose eyes were becoming so weak that he could barely see. I mean, that's just like, cool. Nice touch. He says, he was lying down in his usual place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. Uh, Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord. Okay, again, watch the contrast. Okay? Not many visions. Eli, old and his eyes can't see. Where's Eli laying down? Okay? In his usual place. Okay? Where's Samuel lying down? You see it? He's lying down in the temple. The writer's doing some cool stuff here. He's saying there's not many visions and the old man can't even see. And I don't think it... Don't make it just about physical vision. Oh, that's a big part of it. Make it also about spiritual vision. He's old. He's got no spiritual vision. He's laying down in his usual place. He's way off to the side. But look at the young boy Samuel. He's laying down in the temple of the Lord. He goes on and says, The Lord called Samuel. Samuel answered, Here I am. And he ran to Eli. He said, Here I am. You called me? Okay. The, what it says here, oh, where's that point at? The boy Samuel ministered. That, that word is a shift change in Samuel's life. So, how many guys, you guys grew up at, at Sunday school, hearing the story, speak Lord, your servant is listening, you know, you heard all this. And every time you saw that in the flannel graph, okay, how big was Samuel? How big was Samuel in the flannel graph? Huh? He's like six or so. He's probably right now about 15 years old. But, you know, maybe 16, somewhere in that range. And I don't even want to go into why I do what I do, but I've got to touch on this just for a second. My life has been dedicated to students. And uh, people ask me, I remember getting this question, you know, when are you going to, you know, grow up and, you know, get a, get a real church, get a big church, something like that, and, you know, start teaching adults every week. I'm like, well, when you can show me, like, a movement of God that's been started by adults, you know, and compare how many of those started by adults and how many of those started by young people, you know, I, I'd be willing to, to think about shifting, but nearly every great person of God was captivated, you know, when they were young. And so I look at it, and I know I'm one of you. We get so old and stuck in our ways, we've got mortgages and minivans. It's hard for God to redirect our paths. Let's just call it for what it is. It's tough. We've got student loans, all kinds of crap. If God wouldn't upheaval your world, like, oh, well, you know. You know, it's the same thing that, that happens with Jesus. Let me go take care of my mom and dad, or I've got to sell this field, or I'm going to bury somebody. We're adults. We make excuses. I love working with students because they're mobile. They will change on a dime with the ability to do something great with their lives. And when we get old, we get stuck in our ways. And that's why, man, I will spend, I spend every day, I and mean, we work with about 75,000 students a year because I dig students. Because I think they are, they're more willing and able to change the world. And so that's why I give my life to students. I, just, I 
I think they're fantastic. And specifically here, you look at Samuel, the shift that's about to happen in him as he's becoming a teenager is massive. Uh, curious, how many of you guys came to Christ when you were teenagers? Okay? Are you a teenager or younger? All right, there we go. We'll count that. Some of you guys came to Christ as you were adults. Beautiful either way. You came to Jesus. That's the most important thing. But I just see that when I can get a kid, uh, you know, apart and, and get God taking a direct shot at his heart and a direct shot at his life, amazing transformation takes place. And so when you see Samuel here, he's young. He's probably moving into his teenage years. Maybe he's young as 12. And probably no older than 16. He's in that range right there. Uh, I mean, why does this king keep resetting back to where we're not at? Um, there we go. All right, let's keep reading. So they, Samuel answered, here I am. Here I am, you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Go back, to, go back and lie down. So he went back and lay down. Again, the Lord called Samuel. Called Samuel. And Samuel got up and he went to Eli. He says, here I am, you called me. My son, Eli, said, I, I didn't call. Go back and lie down. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. Time out. That does not mean that he doesn't believe in God or know who God is. That is meant to be a contrast with when God starts speaking through him. Okay? So at this point in his life, he's been a, a bit distant, watching the great things that God is doing. He's served faithfully. We've seen that. But this is meant to be a marker saying his life from this point forward is about to make a massive shift. Big time. It says, um, the Lord called to Samuel a third time, just like he did with Moses. And Samuel got up and he went to Eli and he says, Here I am, you called me. Eli realized the Lord was calling the boy. So Eli told Samuel, go and lie down. If he, if he calls you, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and he lay down in his place. I can't imagine. It says the lamp was still lit. So they would light these lamps in the tabernacle or in the tent, and they would burn all night so that it never went dark. And then about the time that dusk came, those lamps would go out, sunlight would come up. So this is probably about dusk that this is happening. I don't know what God's voice sounds like. Evidently, Samuel thought it was Eli. But can you imagine being a teenager? You're sleeping alone in like this, you know, sanctuary type place. You hear your voice. You jump up. You go to the old man like, hey, man, do you need something? No, I'm calling you. You go again. You go again. And then he tells you the last time. I mean, I, I wonder if this makes Samuel want to pee a little bit. He says, <laughs> he says, if he calls you again, I'm like, how do you lay down after that? I'm like, how do you get any sleep? It's like, oh, if who calls me again? God's calling my name. There's a neat shift that happens here. He says, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down his place. And here's the part that I missed for years. I thought God just spoke to him. I never saw this till today. I never saw it. I've heard this story a thousand times. And I thought, I've always, how many of you guys have always pictured the audible voice of God speaking to Samuel? I didn't realize this one line, and, and I know I've read it before, I just never saw it. The Lord came and stood there. I think that's Jesus. I believe we're talking about Jesus right there. The Lord came and stood there, calling at other times, Samuel! Samuel! And I wonder what it's like as he's maybe just starting to drift off to sleep and Jesus shows up. And I wonder, like, it's got an exclamation point. And I wonder, like, let's just play for a second. How does he call his name? Is it with command? Samuel! Samuel! I don't know. I wonder if it's with joy. Samuel! Hey, Samuel! Like, this, this smile on his face. Like, what's it like if God were to wake you up in the middle of the night and call your name? If you're like me, you might pee a little, you know? It might be a little, a little scary, you know? All of a sudden, you, 
lay down. Don't just lay down your bed tonight and pretend that God's literally going to wake you up in the middle of the night. We, what do you do? Um, I don't have, have time to go into the story. But other than um, coming to Jesus and His conversion in my life, the most definitive weird thing that's ever happened to me in my life, all I'm going to say is my wife was up in the you know, condo we were staying in. My father-in-law was walking around on the beach by me. But if you've ever had a God moment that is more surreal than you know what to do with, I've had about two of those. One of those in my life that just rocked me, that I did not know what to do. And I feel like a fool, and I pull this text. I don't have time to help tell the whole story. I'll tell part of it. I was mad at God. You ever been mad at God before? Take to God. Irritated. Probably more ticked in saying phrases that I probably shouldn't say to the creator of the universe. But I was mad. Let's just say that. Uh, God was not answering my prayer. I, we were at California. I was a youth pastor in Oklahoma. I'd go out every night just begging God for an answer. Really frustrated about a lot of different issues. And I remember telling God, Yo, God, this is why people don't want to serve you. We come out here and we pray our guts out. You can't even give a common courtesy of an answer. Here, I'm willing to give you my life, and I can't get a, you know, a simple answer from you? And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me, God? I'm giving my life, and you can't answer a simple prayer? I mean, I'm like, oh, blasphemy. I mean, Jesus should have just killed me that day. Uh, he should have taken my life. And I remember just sitting there just praying and praying and praying. Like, God, I just want an answer. Like, this is it, my last night. It's Friday night. We go home tomorrow. I got nothing from you. Thanks for nothing. I'm yelling at the waves. And by this time, it's probably about 10 o'clock at night. And this is, I, I look at this kind of like Hannah's prayer. It's not pretty. I mean, it's me. I'm angry in my prayer. I'm frustrated. I'm hurt. I'm irritated. I just, God, I need help. And I'm getting nothing from him. And I'm just, God, why? Why can't you just answer prayer? I'm like, make that light bulb go out of it. Yes, you know, whatever. I'm, just, I'm doing crazy things. Look at the pier. Just, God, give me a sign. Nothing. And I remember I, I put these two things, these two uh, things in the sand. I drew these, like these little trenches in the sand. Like, God, I'm supposed to do this? Like Gideon the fleece. I want you to fill this with water, but not this one. If I'm supposed to do this one, fill it with water and leave this one empty. All right, God, I'm going to step back. You answer me with the waves right now. You created the ocean to answer me. And all of a sudden, I kid you not, the water washed them right next to each other and it went back out. Washed them right next to each of them. Like, oh, it, it was going to go in this one, went back out. The next thing you know, next wave, just bam, just blast them, though. Just annihilates them. And what it came down to is me asking, God, am I supposed to stay in ministry? Or I was looking at going to get my law degree because I was so frustrated with, with, with just being in ministry. It's a frustrating church I was at. I was irritated. God, I, I want out of this. And finally, I kid you not, as God is my witness, you can see my journal. And in fact, it's in, I had the actual journal with a piece of paper when it happened and sitting on top of my coffin, which is a weird sentence to say. Um, but you're welcome to come to my office and say, I want to see this. I'll show it to you. Odd sentence to say. But I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I look down the beach, and I see this guy walking up. Okay, so I'm here. There's a pier over here. Where I'm, there's some light coming off the pier, but it's, it's dark outside. But enough light, moonlight and pier light, you know, you can kind of see. See this guy walking down the beach. My father-in-law is just enjoying the evening. He's drinking a cup of coffee and just kind of, you know, he's a godly man, walks with Jesus. And he's drinking his coffee, having a, just relaxing out with the Father, and he's praying off by himself. And, this guy comes walking to the beach. I'm like, I'm mad at God. And all of a sudden, you know, I start talking quieter, you know, because I don't want to embarrass myself. So I start kind of dropping the volume down. And I remember at that point, I'm kind of down, just kind of praying and stuff. And I see this guy. He gets about here from here to the wall right over there. So he's, what is that, 30, 40 feet away, something like that. And I keep praying and stuff. And all of a sudden, he gets from he gets in there about 20 feet away. And I'm sitting there praying by the waves, you know, just out of where I'm not getting wet, but the waves are washing up close. I keep praying to God. God, I just want to answer. Give me some direction. And all of a sudden, you know, I kind of stand up because I kind of keeps walking. I'm telling you, as God as my witness, this is what happened. 
And I know it's one of those moments you're going to believe, like, whatever. I, my father-in-law lives in Webb City now. I'll show you the journal entry. As God is my witness, this is what happened. I can't make this junk up. This is what this is how I went down. This dude walks up to me, walks right up to me on the beach. And, and like, I turn, like, at this point, I'm ready to fight. You know, so I'm like, dude, we're going to get mugged or something. And he walks up, and his first words out of my mouth, Jesus, you were there, you know. He says, I'm a prophet of God that brought you a word from the Lord. About peeing myself. I've done that like three times today. I didn't feel using that expression. I'm like, oh, what do you say? All I can do is go, speak prophet, for I've sought a word from God. I feel like Samuel in this moment. I feel like Samuel. I'm like, like, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, prophet, for I've sought a word from God. I was like, what an idiotic thing to say. I felt so stupid. I still feel stupid saying it. It ended up being a huge waste of time. But the long story of it, he gave, he talked for two hours, gave me a cigar. I'm like, what kind of prophet are you? Paying out cigars? And then he's everything I wouldn't want a prophet. I'm not trying to be tacky here. I just mean this. Like, if I'm getting a prophet, I prefer that he's an NFL lineman. He preaches like a... Like, Southern Baptist black preacher is what I want, honestly. I mean, I want a big old boy built like a linebacker. I don't want a booming voice with God. And this guy is, like, effeminate. He's got, like, blonde spikes in his hair. He's got, like, his black pants, his black jacket, a little frilly shirt. I'm like, dude, if, I, if I'm picking prophets, you're not it. You're just not, you're just not it. He's like, yeah. Someday I will tell you the rest of that story and how God moved in it. Because it does become, that moment's not the most definitive act of God in my life. The piece of paper that's in the journal is the most definitive act of God in my life. Uh, because something he said that night came true in a way that just rocked my world. Uh, that was in 90... That would have been in 99, I think. Or so, or 2000, right around in there. And then the Lord did something uh, several years later. That I'll bring, if you want to see it, I'll bring the journal. I'll tell you the story another time. We can do it when we're not recording it. It's just it's the most crazy story of God moving. It just killed me. Um, moving on. He says this. He says, uh, the Lord said, come here. This is speaking for your servant is listening. He says, and the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something. He says, in Israel, that will make the ears of everyone who hears it tingle. And at that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Whoa. It makes me think of Hebrews when it talks about he who tramples the Son of God underfoot, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a raging expectation will consume the enemies of God. It sounds a lot like Hebrews 10. I don't even know how far to take that line, but that's a bold line. Samuel lay down to mourning and then opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He was afraid to tell Eli the vision. Yeah. But Eli came to him and said, Samuel, my son. Samuel said, here I am. He said, what was it he said to you? If I'm Eli, I'm not sleeping with the night. I'm wanting to know all morning. He said, Eli asked, don't hide it from me, boy. <laughs> he says, may God deal with you and be it ever so severely if you hide anything from me that he's told you. So Samuel told him everything. Imagine the first prophecy that he gives is saying, you're going to die, your boy's going to die, and your whole family's cut off from God. That's your first shot. Yeah. Great sermon. Um, and it says, And Eli said, He is a Lord. Let him do what is good in his eyes. And the Lord was with Samuel, and he grew up. And he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba. Dan to Beersheba is an expression. Basically means from New York to L.A. That's what it means. He says, He recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. 
And the Lord had continued to appear at Shiloh, and there revealed himself to Samuel through his word. And Samuel's word came to all Israel. Let's end with this, and we'll kind of wrap this thing up. Um, it's, there, there's two phrases that get used in regards to Samuel that are interesting there at the end. He calls him a prophet uh, in a word that means that he proclaims. But the other one being almost like a seer or a, a visionary that can see the things that God reveals. And, and the cool thing is that Samuel knights those two. He's never a priest, but he becomes a prophet. And this new office, before that, the only prophets were like Moses and Aaron, was Abraham, and now you've got a new line of prophets here. And he's going to set up a school of prophets. He's going to set up a line of prophets that are really critical. But what does God bring in the midst of turmoil? What does God bring in the midst of sin and evil? He brings his word, and he brings it through Samuel. And, and sometimes we look at our nation and we're thinking, God, we're so screwed up. God, we're so messed up. God, how do we turn this thing around? I'm going to say the same way that, that God turns Israel around or begins to turn them around or tries to turn them around. And this text is the same way he could use today. Somebody who's willing to be committed as a servant and who's willing to speak the words that God gives them. That's what Sam is going to do. He's going to be committed as a servant and he's going to speak the word that God gives him. So many people, 2 Timothy talks about, they want to hear what their tickling ears, their tingling ears want to hear. You know, St. Paul warns Timothy, man, be careful. There's false prophets out there. They're just going to say what people want to hear. And Samuel won't be that guy. From the very beginning, he's given a very difficult word. And he says it. And, and I think he says it in such a way that Eli just receives it. And when God wants to transform a nation, he does it through someone who's willing to be a servant who's willing to speak his word. A point of caution for us as believers is... Sometimes we live in a culture that makes us want to shirk back from speaking truth because it's not tolerant. It's, it's not right. Well, you're, that's your opinion. That's not ours. And I would say, while we're always prepared to give an answer, as Peter says, for the hope we have, and we do that with gentleness and respect, as Peter tells us, at the same time, there's got to be this unique boldness within us that we're always willing to speak the word that God gives us. Now, my challenge for me is I think sometimes I, I press pause on that. Like, oh, God, I don't know if you're telling me to say that or not. Ah, oh, man, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say it. And I pause. Oh, man, oh, I've got to be careful there. I don't, don't want to press in too much. Oh, man, as long as you're not pressing in, you know, Samuel's first sermon was, you're going to die, your boys are going to die, and your whole household's cut off. That was his first sermon. Maybe, maybe God will tell you to start there. Maybe he won't. But my challenge to you is if God reveals something to you, what would happen if you had the guts to actually speak it? To a friend, to a family member, to a spouse, to a child. What would happen to this world if believers came to the point where God spoke a word to them, they were actually willing to speak it themselves? What a beautiful, mind-boggling, culture-changing thing they happen. I think one of the biggest tragedies we have in our culture are Christians with lockjaw. We just have a lockjaw, man. We're so freaking scared to speak truth. When did we become such cowards for crying out loud? God did not give us a spirit of timidity, Timothy says. One of power, one of love, one of sound mind. And I'm not talking about being caustic with your words. But, but keep in mind, the cross is offensive. Paul tells us that. It doesn't mean you have to say it in an offensive way. It doesn't mean you've got to be cruel with your words. It doesn't mean you've got to be harsh with your words. But I think one of the reasons are we just whine and cry about our culture, but we have the opportunity to speak truth. We have lockjaw. 
And one thing you know right now, Samuel will never have locked up. He'll never have locked up. He'll never be afraid to speak truth. I think Samuel will do it with gentle respect. I think Samuel looks at that old man Eli. He doesn't, he doesn't necessarily respect who he is, but he tells him the truth. What would happen this week if you did that? You told the truth. When you see something going on at work, you see something going on here and there, and people ask you what you think, but you know they kind of want to know your thoughts, and instead of going, well, you know, I kind of feel a little bit different. I don't know. And kind of melt away. You wash out. What would happen if you just had a bit of fortitude and through the Spirit of God you said, let me tell you something. I really do think you're going the wrong direction. Let me talk about a great high priest who wants to intercede for you, who can forgive all of your sins, who can set you right with him, who gives you grace and not works, who leads you in a path of righteousness, and this is not the way you need to be going. See, if you remember, early on in chapter 2, a prophet did come to Eli, didn't he? It wasn't Samuel. We already read that. Eli got a warning. He just didn't heed it. It took... 10 more, 13 more years. And finally Samuel has to say it again. That's my challenge. Speak truth. All right. I will not be with you guys next week. And you're going to give us a fun text. We got some cool stuff coming. Um, it, this book picks up speed as we go. The stories get more and more intense. We still got to kill Goliath. We got David doing some, and Saul doing some crazy stuff. We got witches coming in and people being killed. It's a great book. Great, great book. You're going to love it. Uh, next week, uh, I want to tell you my personal opinion is God does something. We need to let you go, but I want to give you my personal opinion because I don't know if the teacher's going to going to agree with me, and that's fine. Um, but it's, it's, it's more than fine. But I want you to look at one thing here. In chapter 5, this is me stepping in next week because I don't get to teach this text. So I'm going to give it to you. Chapter 5, verse 9, it says, uh, But after they moved it, meaning the Ark of the Covenant, it says, The Lord's hand was against the city, throwing into great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumors. Um, those tumors, uh, in verse 9, uh, if you understand, in the Septuagint, means tumors in the groin. That's hilarious. Dude, what God does to them. He gives them tumors in the groin. Yeah, just go there. Just let yourself go there. Because... I don't want you to get so bored with this book, you can't see the irony. You're God Almighty. You get a chance to afflict them. I'm going to go there. How awesome is that? And you, you counteract that with circumcision and all that kind of stuff that goes along with that. He gives them tumors in the groin. God is awesome. Scripture's amazing. We're done. See you guys. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.